At the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy, a national crisis had just been averted. The Assyrian invaders had been overthrown. God had delivered his people. The Jews were at home in Judah. Jerusalem was a thriving, bustling, prosperous city again. Its inhabitants were enjoying a peace and prosperity. Life couldn't be any better. And I'm sure it sounded strange to hear a prophet such as Isaiah speaking of coming judgment and destruction and captivity. The nation was headed for dire straits. Isaiah anticipates a future of trouble for God's people Israel. Think of it. Isaiah wrote of a generation not yet born. A situation that didn't yet exist. An axe of judgment that had yet to fall. It would take a hundred years before Isaiah's warnings became a reality. Before Babylon invaded Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple and sent the Jews into exile. And it was in Babylon, during those 70 years of time out, that Isaiah was studied by his most ready readers. The Jews in Babylon found great comfort in the writings of Isaiah. The prophet had accurately predicted their demise, but he had also anticipated and prophesied of their deliverance, that God would bring Judah out of Babel and back into the land that he had promised their forefathers. Chapter 50 again speaks of that deliverance. And yet here Isaiah's words go even beyond Israel's return from Babylon. Isaiah predicts that God will save his people from a far worse captivity. That he'll free them from the prison of pride and from the shackles of sin. Well, chapter 50 begins. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce? Whom I have put away. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions your mother has put away. Now the Jews in exile, they will wonder. They'll wonder why. They'll ask, why have they been displaced from their homeland? Has God forsaken us? Has the Lord divorced his bride? Has our master sold us into slavery? These will be the questions they'll ask. They're sitting along the Euphrates there in the bowels of Babylon. And yet God answers their inevitable whys. The reason for their trouble had nothing to do with God turning his back on them. No, it was the Jews who turned their back on God. Listen again to God's sobering explanation. For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. It was their sin that brought on the trouble. It wasn't God's fault. It was their own fault. They had sold themselves into slavery. And this is the first step in a person overcoming any kind of enslaved situation. Or what we might call an addiction. That person has to stop blaming their circumstances. Or the people in their lives. Or even God. And admit that the problem is me. They have to take some personal responsibility. As the old AA saying goes, if I am not the problem, there can be no solution. If I'm not walking in freedom from alcohol or from drugs or from pornography or from gambling or from video games or whatever it is that has me trapped, it's not God's fault. It's that I am not tapping into His power. God has provided us a deliverance through the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we have to learn to appropriate that power. To repent and believe. Imagine falling out of your raft in a raging river. You're flailing away in the rapids. You're being swept downstream. There's a life rope right next to you, but you don't see. You haven't grabbed it yet. There's hope on a rope, but it's got to be embraced, does it not? And the same is true spiritually. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 promises us, No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is a way out. There's always a way out. Turn from your sin. Look to the Savior. He is faithful. The reason the Jews were enslaved wasn't because God had sold them into the slavery. They had sold themselves. Well, verse 2 asks the question, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? God has always wanted to deliver His people. But when He knocked, no one answered. No one opened the door. He says, Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? I mean, is God's arm too short? Is there a tight spot from which He can't reach in and pull you out? Of course not. He says, Indeed, with my rebuke, I dried up the sea. I make... The rivers of wilderness, their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. I mean, there's nothing God cannot do. He dries up rivers. He turns a daytime of sunshine into the black backdrop of a night. If God can drop the sea, He can deliver you and me. You know, it's interesting the phrase, when I called, was there none to answer? See, the reason men aren't saved isn't that God hasn't provided. The Jews haven't answered. You know, even with our salvation, God has made advanced plans. He made a provision that He spoke of beforehand. You remember in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, before Jesus came into the world, the Savior said of Himself, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. You know, all throughout the Bible, God unfolds His plan to atone for sin and to redeem mankind. And it's not surprising that He does the same here. And in the next few verses here of Isaiah chapter 50, Messiah speaks. The eternal Son of God anticipates His future feelings when He will come to earth, even the ways that His people will treat Him. These are the words of Jesus now, beginning in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Now, if I were to ask you what Jesus did during his first 30 years on earth, most of you would say, well, he worked in a carpenter's shop. But that would be only partially true. His primary task, according to Isaiah, was to study the Scriptures. Day by day, morning by morning, Jesus learned the voice of God. He studied the Scriptures. He prayed. You recall at the age of 12 years old, his parents left Jesus behind in Jerusalem. And when they returned to find him, 
They saw him there in the temple confounding the Jewish scholars, asking and answering their questions. How often in the Gospels did Jesus use an Old Testament verse in a new and timely way? Jesus was so steeped in the Scriptures that he could speak a word in season. And if the author thought it necessary to be learned in the Scriptures, how much more is that true for you and me? In fact, have you ever been on the receiving end of a word in season to a person who is weary? When you were down, when you were out, has someone ever spoken a word to you that lifted your spirits? That refocused you on what's true and right? It can be a great encourager, can it not? But only the tongue of the learned can deliver such a word. And this is why we need to study our Bibles. Not just on Sunday, but hopefully day by day, morning by morning, you too are getting into the Word of God. You want to be one of those learned people. Jesus knew what to say and how to say and when to say it. God may want to use you in a similar fashion to speak a word in season. Be prepared and become learned in the Word of God. And then he says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And this is a reference to Exodus chapter 21. I've opened my ear. This is the law of the bond slave. You know, today slavery is seen as barbaric and dehumanizing and racist, and it's certainly all of the above. But not so in ancient Israel. That's not how the Jews saw it. The Jews saw it and practiced it as an alternative to bankruptcy. See, if I didn't have the money to pay my debt, I could become a slave to my creditor. I could work off what I owed. On occasion, a slave found that he was treated better by the master than he could achieve on his own that he experienced a better life in his master's house than he could forge out by himself. And thus, he became a love slave or a bond slave to that master and voluntarily committed to live forever in his master's house. Now, in the New Testament, both Paul and John, they pick up on this practice and they use it as a picture. And they refer to themselves as bond servants of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Everyone who follows Jesus discovers that life in his house, at his table, is far better than anything we could achieve on our own. He treats us with such grace and with such bounty. We all should be happy to be slaves of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus himself was a bond slave. He was a bond slave of his father. For here he declares, the Lord God has opened my ear. You see, when a slave agreed to be a love slave, his master would take him to the doorpost of the home. And there he would drive a metal awl, a sharp needle, through the earlobe of the person into the doorframe of the house. The slave was, in essence, nailing himself to the master's house. He was committing himself to his master. And he would wear an earring as a sign of that commitment. And this is here how Jesus describes himself. The Lord has opened my ear, he says. In fact, Jesus did more than just put his ear to the post to prove his love for the Father. His whole body was pierced for the Father's glory. And then Jesus also speaks in verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. 
I did not hide my face from the shame and from the spitting. Now there's an old riddle. It goes like this. Question, what is the only thing in heaven that's man-made? And the answer, the scars of our Lord Jesus. And it's true. And here, Isaiah prophesies details about Jesus' crucifixion. Understand, before crucifixion was ever invented, it's amazing. Jesus' body will be beaten. The Roman scourgers will stripe his torso with lacerations. Their whips will dig deep into the muscle and the flesh. His back will look like ground round. Both Jews and Romans will spit in his face. There is a detail mentioned here by Isaiah that doesn't even appear in any of the gospel records. Jesus says, I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Wow. The executioners literally ripped his beard from off his face, probably pulling the skin off with it. You know, when my kids were small, I wore a beard. Kathy has since forbidden it, so I no longer wear a beard. But I, I enjoyed a beard. But I can remember my little kids when they were little. They'd stick their fingers up into my beard, and, and they would uh, grab it, and they would yank it. Wow, just their childish, childish pulling hurt. I can't imagine my beard literally being ripped from my face. But that is exactly what Isaiah says they, they did to Jesus. Now, it's interesting. When you study the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you run across an interesting phenomenon. At first glance, many of the eyewitnesses didn't recognize him. You remember Mary thought that he was the gardener. Thomas actually had to touch his scars. You remember when Jesus ate breakfast with the disciples there on the beach by the Sea of Galilee, we're told, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. But apparently they were tempted to ask on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples who walked with Jesus. They didn't recognize him. We're not told why, but Scripture says their eyes were restrained. Now, admittedly, a lot of factors caused the disciples to do a double take. For one, they, they didn't expect him. I mean, would you expect to see someone that you'd seen crucified the day before? Would you expect to see him walking around? But I believe a big part of the explanation for their reticence in recognizing Jesus was the disfigurement that he suffered both before and at his crucifixion. Isaiah 52 verse 14 that we'll read next week, it reads, His visage was marred more than any man. A literal translation reads, he was no longer recognizable as a man. You see, we know the post-resurrection body of Jesus contained scars from the wounds that he suffered on the cross. Thomas asked to see the scars in his hands and in his feet. But there were other scars on Jesus' body. His brow had been penetrated by that crown of thorns. On his back, there were Stripes from the scourging. And if his beard was plucked out, why wouldn't there be scars on his face? I think Jesus was beaten beyond recognition to the point of no longer even looking human. His face was swollen like a boxer that had been 15 rounds. 
Or, or his face looked like the victim of an automobile accident whose head had gone through the windshield. If there had been a funeral for Jesus, I'm sure it would have been closed casket. And here's a provocative thought. If his scars were visible shortly after his resurrection, why wouldn't it be different now? Or why would it be different now? Or why would it be different when we first see him? See, I I believe for some of us, this is going to be a shock. For when we see Jesus, rather than a handsome profile, we're going to look into a face that has been severely disfigured. In Revelation chapter 5, John goes off into the future and he's looking for someone who's worthy to open the scroll and take the title deed of the earth. When he finds no one, he starts to weep. That's when an angel comes and comforts him and says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then John describes, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. What a provocative thought. John sees Jesus as though he had been slain, still bearing the scars of crucifixion. I have a friend who once wrote a song entitled The Eternal Reminder. And he tackles this idea in his song from the perspective of a believer who died and went to heaven. It goes like this. I cried in glee, no more will there be any trace of sorrow or of pain. But my Savior shook his head and said, some things remain. He showed to me his hands and feet, how badly they were scarred. And then I knew as never before how much I owed my Lord. Now the pain and struggles known on earth are gone forevermore, save the only scars that will not fade are on my precious Lord. And this is why I believe our first glimpse of Jesus may be shocking, even startling. We might even recoil in horror. But once we process it, our astonishment is going to turn to appreciation. And we will love Him all the more for what it cost Him to save you and me. Verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus is saying this before His crucifixion. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Picture Jesus on the cross. His face is set like flint. Flint is a hard stone. It was used to sharpen tools. Or to create friction and sparks. Isaiah is saying that beneath the mass of bloody, torn tissue, Jesus has a look of determination. Though He went to the cross to bear our shame, Jesus was never put to shame. He kept His dignity and His poise and His purpose while on the cross. He knew the Father was in control. That the purposes of God were being fulfilled. That he would be justified in the end. And that his adversaries would be judged. His body might have hung from the tree. But never did Jesus hang his head. 
Ironically, Jesus died a death intended to shame and to mock and to humiliate, but he did so with honor. I love Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice Jesus endured, despising the shame. He says in verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Jesus teaches us how to cope with persecution and with shameful treatment. Endure it with dignity. Endure it with poise, never forgetting that God is in control. And then verse 10 tells us, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. It's trust that turns on the lights. We need to fear God. We need to rely on the Lord. He says, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now, see, he's addressing those who trust in themselves, who walk in the light of their own fire and in the sparks that they have kindled. And God is warning them that they're going to be tormented. See, here's a person who might want to serve God, but in his, his or her own way. They want a relig religion of convenience and accommodation, not of repentance and faith. And thus, torment awaits them. They need to fear the Lord. Not trust in their own ways and methods. And then in chapter 51. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. <laughs> you remember Joseph was lifted up out of the pit. God here tells the Jews that like a chiseled out rock. They're to look to the cliff from where they originate. Look to their roots. He says, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Nearly all of God's dealings with the Jews were predicated on his covenant with Abraham. He had promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation. That they would occupy a land that extended from the Euphrates to the Nile. And that through an heir of Abraham, salvation would be offered to all mankind. You know, today Israel is full of atheists and agnostics. And God will judge all men individually, but collectively as a nation. God isn't through with Israel. He has made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and with his family. Verse 3, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And in many ways, the fulfillment of this prophecy has already begun in Israel. Deserts have become gardens filled with joy. When we go down to En Gedi, we're going to the desert. But the Jews flock there. They treat it like a garden. They have fun. They celebrate their holidays. Their families enjoy the water and the waterfalls and the beautiful area. The Israelis are happy people. You know, you get the sense... That because of the threats around them, they know that life is tenuous. And so they enjoy it while they can. I think this is an attitude that needs to be true of us Christians. 
In light of eternity, life is short. Enjoy it. Make, it. make the most of it. Give glory to God. Enjoy the life that He's given you. It's sad when you see a sullen Christian who looks like he or she has been baptized in pickle juice. That's not a good testimony. Life is fleeting. It's too brief to be spent with a sad face or to feel guilty when you laugh. Dance a little, man. Sing a song. Joke a little. Having fun is not unspiritual. He says, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the people's. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Isaiah predicts that the coastlands, or the faraway continents, will trust in God's salvation. That's certainly been fulfilled, hasn't it? He says, lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. Planets and people will come and go. But God's righteousness will never be abolished. Notice Isaiah says that the earth will grow old. This is happening today. Sort of like a cheap sweater. Planet earth is growing old. It's wearing out. Holes are appearing. Did you know that the fluorocarbons emitted into the atmosphere, they take 50 years to reach the ozone layer where they damage the planet's solar protection? That means that the harm done to the Earth today is a result of pre-1965 emissions. The fluorocarbons that have been released since haven't even reached the upper atmosphere. In other words, the Earth is growing old. Holes are appearing in the upper reaches of the atmosphere. In contrast, God's salvation is forever. His grace never, ever runs out. Verse 7 tells us, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. It seems that this verse is for members of the new covenant God has made in Christ. That He would write His law on our hearts and implant it in our nature. So that our basic impulses will be to love God and to love others. We know that the heart of God's righteousness is love. For the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. The insults and the mockery of evil men are like the old coat in your closet that the moths get into and eat away. One day our reproach will be judged. What is right in God's sight will remain from generation to generation. And then he says, awake, awake, put on strength. O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Now Isaiah is prophesying around the year 700 B.C. That's 2,700 years ago. But here he delves into what he calls or what was the antiquity even of his day. He goes back further into history. He says, as in the ancient days. He's right 2,700 years ago. So this is really ancient for us. He says, verse 9. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? 
<laughs> We're going to get into some stuff here. Now, you know that the word Rahab, it means proud one. This was an ancient name for Egypt. And this verse may just refer to Israel's exodus from Egypt. But here Rahab is also associated with a serpent. Could this be another name for Leviathan, that twisted serpent that we read about back in chapter 27 of Isaiah? Now recall, there is a battle raging in the universe between God and the serpent. The Old Testament calls him Rahab or Leviathan. In the New Testament, he is identified in Revelation 12 as the great dragon, that serpent of old, the devil. You remember, this was how Satan first appeared in the Garden of Eden, as a serpent with legs. What is that? That's a dragon. Job chapter 26 speaks of creation as an episode in this conflict between God and the serpent. Job 26, I'll quote, By his spirit, God adorned the heavens. How? His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. From the very beginning, this conflict has been real. God against the serpent. Psalm 74 describes another skirmish at Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. Let me read you Psalm 74 verse 13. It says, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Apparently, the serpent of old attacked Israel as the nation passed through the Red Sea. And God broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. As Isaiah 50 here puts it, God cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent. But here's where Psalm 74 goes bizarre. After God broke Leviathan in pieces, according to Psalm 74, He gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. In other words, God defeats the sea serpent. He breaks him into pieces, and then He feeds the serpent piecemeal to Israel while Israel wanders through the wilderness. And what did the Israelites eat daily during those 40 years they wandered in the wilderness? Manna. And the word manna is best translated, what is it? They didn't really know what they were eating. Apparently, it was an atypical, unrecognizable entree. So here's the question. Was the manna that they ate in the wilderness, was it really sea serpent meat? Could be. I've joked before that the manna was angel's food cake. But would devil's food cake be more accurate? Perhaps. It's ironic. Leviathan tries to destroy Israel, but God turns the tables. Satan is the one that gets beaten and then eaten. God chops up the sea serpent and he uses the pieces to sustain Israel in the desert. God gets the last laugh. How ironic is that? Ancient Mesopotamian folklore speaks of God and the sea serpent in a showdown. This is a theme that reoccurs over and over. In some of the writings, the serpent is cut into pieces and given to God's people for food. The story sounds really strange to our ears, but it was common in some of the writings of antiquity. In fact, Psalm 89 verse 10 is another related passage you can look up on your own. 
if nothing else, it gives us some real food for thought. Verse 10 continues to speak of God. He says, Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Certainly a reference to the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. And so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God opened the sea and allowed His people to come through. And in the same way, He's going to provide other roads in the sea for His people to return to Zion. This is a passage that also has been fulfilled in our day. It reminds us of the post-World War II flotillas that brought European Jews to Haifa there in Israel. Isaiah's point is that God is able to deliver His people. He's able to even create a road in the sea for the redeemed to cross over. He says, I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the Son of Man who will be made like grass? Why be afraid of somebody who's just going to die? Someone whose life is no more stable than grass. And you forget the Lord your God. You trust in me and you forget the Lord your God who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Here's a glimpse into God's thinking. He speaks of his three great achievements. He's planted the heavens. Pretty impressive. He's laid the earth's foundations. Another pretty good mark on your resume. So far, no surprises. I mean, these are impressive entries on God's resume. But right up there, with His creation of the heavens and earth, notice God takes pride in saying to Zion, You are my people. In other words, creating a people for Himself is just as important to God as structuring the universe. He loves Israel. And He also loves you, His church. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. He's been working for 6,000 years to create a people that He can call His own. He says, awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There's a time when God's people need to take a stand. God has judged Jerusalem. Now He calls on the Jews to awake from their spiritual stupor. But here's a problem. If the Jews do stand up for God, who will lead them? Verse 18. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth. Nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. It's sad. God can call on His people to move. 
He can even revive their hearts. But if there is no leadership, where will the movement take them? Every great spiritual awakening has involved bold and godly leadership. Men step up. They take God's people by the hand and they provide them biblical guidance. He says, these two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. In other words, Israel's leaders had gone to the head of the streets to lead God's people. But they were trapped in their own sin. Like an antelope in a net, they were useless. If you aspire to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, make sure that, that you have been freed from the traps and from the nets. Make sure you have not fallen into some kind of sin. A.W. Tozer once wrote, We desperately need men who can see through the mist, Christian leaders with prophetic vision, Unless they come soon, it will be too late for this generation. There is a still a need for these, this kind of godly leadership. Men who are free from sin and able to lead. Who don't go to the head and then fall in their own trap. Verse 21, Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. He's speaking of those who are drunk with fear and worry and unbelief. He says, Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people? See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you and have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over you. I mean, the days of Israel being trampled will one day be over. No longer will they drink the cup of judgment. It'll be given to their oppressors instead. God will revive Israel. They will rise up and awaken. And they will be His people. Chapter 52 looks forward to this future deliverance. And ultimately to the day when Jesus returns and delivers all God's creation from the effects of sin and rebellion. Verse 1. Awake. Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Gentile warriors who've invaded and judged Israel in the past will now be gone for good. God's people will put off sackcloth and ashes and dress now in gorgeous garments, robes of righteousness. He says, shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This was certainly a word to the Jews who had returned from Babylon and rebuilt Jerusalem. They had loosed the bonds of their captivity. But oh, since 70 AD, Jerusalem has again been trampled by the Gentiles. Jesus spoke of it. Gentile occupation will reach a climax when the Antichrist will set up his throne in the holy city itself. You see, this passage has implications for the future. The final battle, the battle of Armageddon, we call it, will actually be fought over Jerusalem. The Bible teaches us that Jesus will return to earth and he'll liberate the city a final time. 
And here he's telling the city at that point to put on your beautiful garments for your salvation is about to come. He says, for thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. You remember they sold themselves earlier into slavery? But what did they get out of it? Nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. Well, if they're not redeemed for money, then what are they redeemed with? How about the blood of a sacrifice? The blood of Jesus Christ. He says, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now here's an amazing insight that, to my knowledge, we get from nowhere else in Scripture. Egyptologists tell us that there were periods of foreign occupation in Egypt's history. In fact, after Joseph died, the Assyrians actually occupied Egypt for nearly 400 years. You remember Exodus speaks of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Remember, Joseph had occupied a top position in the court of Egypt. But since he wasn't Egyptian, the new Pharaoh was ignorant of Joseph. The new Pharaoh was an Assyrian. It happened to be one of these times of, of uh, foreign occupation. This explains Exodus chapter 1, verse 9. You remember the reason that all of the male Hebrew infants were to be drowned in the Nile? You remember the reason? The rulers said, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. You see, the Israelites constituted a larger minority than the ruling foreigners at the time. It's interesting, Isaiah tells us what Exodus leaves out. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them will make them wail says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Again, Isaiah is speaking of their exile in Babylon. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. In other words, Almighty God is about to do a deed so miraculous that it will distinguish him. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, we live in a day when messenger, messages travel instantly over fiber optics or satellites or through the Wi-Fi. But in ancient times, messages were delivered by individuals on foot. And thus the recipient of the messages appreciated the messenger. They would say, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. This was the reaction to the Jews, to the messengers who came with news of Babylon's fall. And this is the passage quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, that he applies to the person who shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans, Paul writes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The messenger who brings the good news of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is his feet or her feet. Boy, the only person ever told me I had beautiful feet was the Apostle Paul. But it's true. As far as God is concerned, anyone who is a messenger of the gospel has fashionable feet. 
Remember, the only thing better than going to heaven is taking somebody with you. And then verse 8. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. I love that. In other words, God has rolled up His shirt sleeve. And He's revealed His bulging bicep. Don't you underestimate his strength. One day, he'll show it all for all to see. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He is mighty to save. Today, God uses his strength not to fight or to build or even to rule, but to save. And he is mighty to save. Verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now remember the treasures from Solomon's temple that King Nebuchadnezzar brought to Babylon. These were the vessels that Belshazzar desecrated at his drunken orgy. We've talked about that several times now. The night that Babel fell to the Persians. Ezra chapter 1 tells us that one of the Persian kings, Cyrus's first decrees was to return those temple vessels to the Jews. And here God gives instructions to those who would bring those temple treasures back. He gives promises of protection to those Jews that will transport those treasures back to Jerusalem. It's interesting, in the New Testament, you and I are the temple of God. And His Spirit has adorned our lives with certain gifts and treasures. Part of Christ's redemptive plan is to restore to us all that Satan has stolen from our lives. You remember Job, after his trial, he got back double all that he had lost? But this didn't happen in the Old Testament until a change occurred on the throne. It was only when the evil Babylonian was deposed and the new king took the throne that the temple treasures were retrieved. And it won't happen for us and in your life until a similar transition occurs. You need to step off the throne. And you need to let Jesus sit on the throne of your life. It's only when Christ is on the throne that He'll restore the stolen treasures, the gifts and the talents and the reputation and the joy that God intended for you to possess all along. And there's one more lesson here. Once the stolen treasures are retrieved, don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry to restore them all immediately. Don't act rashly and rush into it. Take your time. Let the Lord go before you and be your rear guard. When you hurry, you make mistakes. He's saying, slow down. Don't get ahead of God. Don't lose focus. Don't compromise. God is in control, not us. And so trust in Him. And then verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. 
Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Now I'm sure you're aware that the chapter and the verse divisions in your Bible were not there in the originals. They have been added. The biblical text is inspired by God, but the chapters and the verses are man-made. The Bible was divided into chapters in 1227 A.D. by a man named Stephen Langton. The verses were added by a French printer named Robert Stephanus in 1551 A.D. In fact, the first English Bible containing both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible, which was published in 1560. Now certainly, these divisions are extremely important and helpful. Can you imagine trying to locate passages, maybe your favorite passage without the help of chapter and verse? That'd be a little frustrating, wouldn't it? But there are places where the division breaks up the text awkwardly. And one such place is here in chapter 52. In my opinion, chapter 52 should end with verse 12. And chapter 53 should begin with verse 13. You may disagree, but that's how I'm going to approach it. And so as far as I'm concerned, we finish chapter 52 and we'll begin chapter 53 next week with verse 13. And there we have Isaiah 50 to 52. <laughs> now, if you don't have any questions about tonight's Bible study, oh boy, you weren't listening. 